This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. Thank you for finding us. Another edition of No Stop Lights. I want to thank our sponsors once again. Pepsi of Florence, Carolina Bank, Mickey Finns, Marlboro PD Electric Co-op, Francis Marion University, McLeod Health, McCall Farms, Victors, and PLC um, Commercial. So, some of these podcasts I do alone. Some of these podcasts I do with a guest. Um, the majority of the podcasts I do with a guest I think are better because we have some human interaction and conversations become spontaneous and organic, and one thing leads uh, to another. It's a very informal setting. I don't provide. I'll never get I got asked to host a debate not long ago, and the person or people, group of people putting on the debate asked me to provide the questions so they could get them to the candidates. And I said, well, I ain't hosting a debate that the candidates have access to the question, and we don't do that here on No Stop Lights. I think people trust me enough to know that I'm not in the ambush business, but but I am informed enough to try to get to certain subjects and topics that I think are essential and important to this area and and our great state. Representative Jay Jordan has agreed to um, join us on No Stop Lights today. Jay, good morning or good afternoon or good evening whenever you're watching uh, the podcast. How are you? Good everything. Glad yeah, to be, and, and glad that's to be one, with you. And that's one good thing about the podcast. You don't designate a time because it's not on the radio, it's not on the television at a certain time. It's in the internet and you could watch it or listen to it whenever you choose. Um, I did a podcast a couple of weeks back about the disproportional growth in South Carolina. One of the issues I have, Jay, and you and I have talked about this off the record, we're, we're going to live in a state probably by the year 2030, where 80% of its political representation is in 20% of its counties. Well, if that's the case, we've got to be having disproportional growth. Is that the case? Should we be concerned? And what can the General Assembly do to try and manage disproportional growth? So it is, number one, absolutely the case. Um, During this past redistricting process, I learned more about Um, the population of South Carolina, where we're growing, where we're not, where we're losing, where we're losing people. Uh, And so there's no doubt in my mind that we are absolutely growing tremendously in certain parts of South Carolina. What parts, Jake? Uh, Primarily along the coast, you're seeing tremendous growth there. Uh, Greenville and that part of the state has been our historical growth area, but it hasn't grown as much as you might think it has compared to the coast. And then the other big, big area is the offspring of Charlotte, the the York um, region, Rock Hill region of South Carolina. That area has really taken off as well. So you see, I'd say the top two would be the the coastal regions, Ulrey, Charleston, down into the Beaufort area. A lot of people moving moving from up north down that way. And then the, the push from Charlotte and the massive growth it's seeing over into the Rock Hill, York area. So did it make – you chair the redistricting committee in the, in the House. For the House side, that's correct. Did it make it compli- – I mean, you saw the numbers. You saw the writing on the wall. You don't live in a fast-growing area. I mean, we don't live in a, in, a, in a declining populated area, but we don't live in a fast-growing area. But you still got to be fair to the voter. I mean, there there are lawsuits and court decisions out there that say one man, one vote. It's not about, you know, one senator, one county. That's just not the way. That's not the reality. But as someone who had an up-close and personal look at watching these districts become reality and watching some of the slower-growing areas, some of the faster-growing areas, what, what, aside of the political representation, what are some of the challenges that that we'll see? Um, I mean, I'd love to say politics is altruistic, 
and the guys from the beach will do things right for the entire state, but their constituency is at the beach. Greenville, same thing. What fundamental challenges outside of the state house do you see our our, our state encountering? Well, there are so many different types of challenges. There, you said outside the state house, but you can't ignore the challenges that are affected inside the state house. You know, for instance, we're drawing these districts with that that legal underpinning of one person, one vote. That's what we're looking for, so that that we're not disproportionate in that one area is underrepresented and one area is overrepresented. Uh, overrepresented. Um, the reality is that with these high volume increases, you could draw a district as I believe we have drawn districts that are probably, that were definitely in, in balance, so to speak. And, and with the parameters that we, we agreed to, to follow population wise and with this, the growth, they might be out of balance right now, even, and it's just been a couple years. So that presents a challenge that we're going to have to continue to address, you know, politically speaking at state house for years to come. Now, the, the bigger issue that we face on, a, on an immediate basis is the challenges you talk about, um, sprawl, infrastructure, education, all, uh, all those things are being strained as a result of the fast growth. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, it's not as if people are taking, you know, packing their suitcases and, and leaving rural, rural South Carolina on a daily basis. They're just not growing. You know, it's the scenario where you grew up in a rural part of South Carolina, you raise your family there, your kids go off to school, and guess what? They decide Columbia's nice, Greenville's nice, Charleston's nice, I'm going to stay and raise my family there. And so that's creating a, a loss in population in rural South Carolina. So all those things come together to create this, what kind of state are we going to be? Are we going to be as we historically have been, a rural state? And, and I could argue and would argue and have argued that that's, that's the kind of South Carolina I want, a South Carolina that we don't run from innovation, we don't run from technology, we don't run from growth, but at the same time, we want to preserve the roots of who we are as a people and as a state. And we can't do that if we don't recognize, if we, if we get rid of rural South Carolina. When you started down the road of deciding, okay, this district will be here, this district will be there. We don't revisit that until the next census, correct? Correct. So there will be districts with far more voters than than should be. I mean, that's just the reality. We don't go back and redistrict, but every 10 years based on, excuse me, what the census report says. <clears throat> but there are a lot of concern that people have in South Carolina and America about election integrity. Mm -hmm. You were involved in that. I mean, the, the House has a lot to say about the trustworthiness or not of, of the election. With all this growth in certain areas, there's more at risk. There's more in play. How can you guarantee the people of South Carolina we've done all we can to make sure our elections are fair and square? I don't know that you can say people of South Carolina, we can guarantee you everything that can be, or everything, it's 100% safe. I think that's impossible to, to to mandate or to guarantee. I think the best you can do is look the constituents, look the people in the eye and say, we continue to address this. It's such an important topic. It's not something that we take up every 10 years like we draw redraw lines, but we continuously on a yearly or uh, annual basis look at What's working? What's not? Where can we solve problems? Where can we get better? Where can we get efficient? I give Senator Tim Scott a lot of credit. He has a great quote about easier to vote, harder to cheat. And that's where we want to be. We want everyone to to participate in the process. We don't have – we have way too few people that actually go vote. We need more people to go vote. We need to make it – 
harder for people to manipulate the process and system by which we vote. Okay, the majority of voting impropriety was was in the presidential election. I mean, there were accusations made. Um, you know, we won't get into what what happened or statistical anomalies or whatever. I mean, that, that's not what I'm here for. But but there. There's not a lot of reason to come to South Carolina if you are an activist. Um, some of the swings, South Carolina is not a swing state, but there are districts. I'm thinking of the Charleston district, the House seat, um, and I'm talking about U.S. Congress. You know, the Nancy May seat is what I'll call it. Joe Cunningham recently recently held that seat. Um, but it's not your job to be a partisan. It's not your job to be a political hack. It's not your job to promote the Republican brand when you are on that committee and decide this district and that district and another district. But but I know for a fact, and I think you will concur, that there were things done in Charleston, and I'm talking about Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, there, there was there was some Center for Tech and Civic Life money spent, not across the entire state, because that's a wasted that's money wasted. But in certain areas of our state, I don't think anybody knows that. Am I right when I say that there was some American Center for Tech and Civic life money spent in Charleston, South Carolina? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that kind of got this issue on the radar was was that very thing and how the mobile voting unit, you know, basically where money was given, not for the benefit of the election process or system, but, you know, it's one thing if someone says, I got a lot of money, I want to contribute money to the state and here, y'all go run good elections, use this money for elections. That's one thing. It's another thing for you to say, I want this money to go to a vote, a mo mobile voting apparatus that only goes to certain places in certain parts of the state. And that happened in Charleston. And that absolutely happened. And so that's the kind of thing, you know, if you go back and look at one of the things we have been fortunate about, you, may, you said it a minute ago, we haven't had a lot of the issues in South Carolina that a lot of states have had. That has given us the opportunity, however, to learn from the issues that some, that some of those states have had, you know. Those mobile units are a bad thing. They, they offer opportunity for manipulation. Um, drop boxes, bad. Uh, other things like that are recipes for problems. So by learning that those are the ways those states have problems, we can figure out ways to avoid those potholes. One of the, okay, election integrity is a big deal. Election security, election, and nobody's trying, I mean, I know you will, if you're not trying to impede anybody's right to vote. I mean, let's just make sure we have fair elections and we have accurate elections. One of the concerns I've got, and tell me as much or as little, or as, little as you like, because I'm sure you're far more in the know than I am. At the federal level, the two biggest concerns I have is debt and energy. I am deeply concerned that we're on a bad path with our debt, and I believe equally as sincerely that we're in a bad way when it comes to our energy grid. Um, technology and innovation and transitioning from one form of power to another, I am all about doing it bigger, better, and, uh, and more efficient. But the reality is the government has ah, forced a, a, a shorter timeline on transitioning from one form of very liable and dependable energy to another. Some of the states that aren't growing that fast aren't having issues. But last year, we know for a fact that Texas was at the brink of, you know, having a monumental grid failure. Are we there in South Carolina? Are we adequately equipped to tell a economic development client or a, a family of four moving to Greenville or Georgetown, Horry County, that we can provide affordable, dependable energy? So it's a long answer. The, the, the answer, I think... The short version is we're okay right this minute. 
Um, we, we have some great providers here in South Carolina. One is a sponsor of your show, Marlboro PD. They do a great job. Um, I can't say that about all the co-ops across the state, but that's one in particular. Do, they do a fantastic job. Um, but with those two things that you described, number one, the federal government changing the rules, so to speak, and then a significant uh, growth sustained in, in the state, you have we're going to the federal government on the one hand saying we're going to shrink the number of ways and the ability you have to provide power, and then on the other hand, we got more a greater need than we've ever had. Those two things don't mix very well, as you might imagine. So, I think the good news is the bad news is it's a problem on the horizon of the, the very near horizon. The good news is we have a lot of partners we can work with and a lot of good people that recognize we're not running from the problem. A lot of states have run from the problem. We're not running from the problem. We're addressing it. It really is akin to infrastructure. It, it is at the heart of infrastructure. And so by recognizing the government's going to have to play a role in this process and working with these providers and making sure that we have the necessary capabilities for the continued growth, because, oh, by the way, as you said, we're going to continue to address uh, the redistricting every 10 years. Growth is not going away in South Carolina. The news is out. South Carolina is a great place to live, work, raise a family, and more and more people are going to continue to leave up north and come to the south because of those things. So we're only going to grow. So we're going to have to continue to recognize this energy shortfall that's coming and address it. So is there a short-term solution and a long-term solution? You said on the near horizon. Um, I mean, I know that to be true. I know that if we had a really, really, really bad and cold winter, it would stress our assets. I mean, it really and truly would. It would, I mean, we could find ourselves in a similar position than Texas. Not your fault, not my fault. I'm not here to blame anybody. Um, we know what happened in Cross, and we know there was monumental failure there, and we, we dug a hole, and we got to figure out a way to get out of it. You can't plow a straight road looking behind you is what I always try to say. But, Jay, are, are, there, are there discussions in Columbia pertaining to energy that, that you believe give us short-term and long-term solutions? I have optimism for those reasons. I believe there are discussions. So part of those discussions are with those providers that we're saying, right, how, we don't want to make your life harder because we recognize you have a difficult job ahead. How can we how can we help in this issue? And so there is ongoing open dialogue that I think is beneficial to long and short range solutions. What is the what is the obligation of the General Assembly? I again, mean, you guys aren't in the power generating business. No, but again, this as I said a second ago, this this isn't this is infrastructure. You know. You can't have – what are the things that you look for for government to provide? You want safety. You want roads. You want clean water. You want public education. You can't do much of that if the, if the lights don't come on. You can't do you can't do any of that if the lights don't come on, really. So making sure that we're assisting in the process is, is a key ingredient so that we can have a solution to this problem. Or, or, okay. I read a lot about these modular or portable or, or, or you know, smaller nuclear reactors. Is that something that has been considered, and is it going to be considered? So if I was handicapping all the different types of possible solutions, I would I would bet heavy on that particular solution. Um, that is a something that has the ability for us to adapt more easily as our population grows. And, and go back to where we started this conversation. We're not growing uniformly across the state. We're going to have to regionalize this process because that's how we're growing. We can't build, you know, it makes no sense for us to solve this problem and create a solution that's the same for the rural PD part of South Carolina and the same for the, the, uh, the area around Charleston. Those two areas are, are incredibly different. 
Uh, and so they need different forms of solutions. Is there compatibility with the power providers? Are there ongoing discussions? You say it's infrastructure. I'll agree with you, but it's private companies you're dealing with. Um, one of the struggles that somebody like you or I would have, being a small government conservative, is in the in the economic development recruitment process, very often taxpayer dollars are, are put on the table. I mean, they just are. Um, I, I kind of equate it to college football. You know, I would I would rather not have to pay that kid X number of dollars to come play football. You can do this now with an IL and transfer portals. I mean, I would rather the kid come because he loves the university, loves the football program, loves our state, had a girlfriend there, whatever. But the reality is money drives a lot of this. So when the Gamecocks or Tigers or Shauna Clears compete with Alabama or Florida or Georgia for a, a blue chipper football player, they have to make a financial investment, or they have no chance at, uh, at being competitive in that in that situation. So, so is the General Assembly willing to partner with power providers? I mean, obviously, you guys kind of sort of own Santee Cooper. Is Santee Cooper healthier today than it was? And what can you do aiding and assisting Santee and the co-ops in regards to Letting the, is it going to be easier to help the co-ops in Santee Cooper than it would some of the other private power providers? So there's no doubt there's been difficult days leading up to where we sit today. Um, but I do have a little bit, or I do have a sense of optimism. How do you sell that to the public, Jay? I mean, when, when Santee was involved in such a, a crap storm. I'll be polite here. It's podcasting, but I don't want to lose my Baptist audience. I mean, if they were, and I'm not saying they were the major contributor, but they were a part of a, a monumental deal going south. How does the General Assembly help Santee clean that up? Well, I think you have to recognize the issues that were there. Um, I think a big part of what's, you know, why there's been um, lack of clarity about the future in this this discussion is because up until really last year, there was uncertainty. Would the state sell Santee Cooper? Um, that what was, was your opinion of that? Well, how did you feel about that? Was there ever a time you considered that Santee Cooper may need to go private? Oh, absolutely. It was it was absolutely um, a very serious discussion. And uh, you know, the, my opinion on it was this: if we could find a ready, willing, capable buyer that would pay value, significant value, then I would have. I think we should have sold it. The reality was twofold. Number one, um, we didn't. The votes weren't there to sell it, uh, and it, it, as you said, as a state-owned entity, it was going to have to get a majority of votes in the House and the Senate, and the governor go along with it in order for it to come to fruition. That wasn't going to come to be, and I'm not sure in in the the economic world of today um, that the value was on the table to justify letting it go. Again, there was not a lot of clarity about where we were and its future. So now there's clarity. It's going to be a South Carolina asset going forward. So now it, there's not there's no confusion about that. The votes weren't there. The the potential buyer has moved on. We're in a the reality is confirmed. It's going to be a part of South Carolina's um, future going forward. And so now we make the best of that. Um, is that a is that what I in a, in my view of government a perfect. Uh, connection? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm like you. I don't like government getting into any more things that it can possibly get into because it doesn't have a great track record of getting things right more often than not. But we are where we are. We are who we are. And so now we got to move forward the best we can. And so now I think we play it to our advantage. We say we're, we're unique compared to some states. We have 
uh, a state-owned utility? How can we use it to our advantage? And so it absolutely is in part of the discussion as we move forward and how we how we solve the, the problems of the day, and both economically and because those economic issues and those energy issues go hand in hand. I think you, you, you laid on the table there, though. I don't know that there's a much better comparison in the modern day of NIL and economic development. I don't like NIL, NIL and, and there are things about economic development I don't like, but I want to bring industry to South Carolina. And, and so let's just say I, we were going to say on the NIL front – I don't like it, so I'm not participating in it. Carolina Clemson, you won't win many games with that mindset and attitude. You know, it is what it is. And economic, economic development the same. If we're, we're in a competition with other states in the southeast, and we have to recognize that competition, and we have to win that competition. But 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 and and I and I being a small government conservative, I think I am. At times I question whether well, and I'm a socialist libertarian at times. I don't like your government. I love I love mine. But I've got to believe I'm not in the General Assembly. I don't sit on committees. I don't sit on the, the Public Service Authority Board. Um but but I gotta believe that if the General Assembly are trying to advance economic development and energy is an issue. And the General Assembly has a say in how Santee Cooper operates moving forward. There is some control there. There is some collaborating that could happen. In other words, if a if a huge energy user is considering coming to South Carolina, and you have no sway over Santee Cooper, it's hard to answer emphatically and accurately what we can or cannot do. Now, I mean, and I'll accept it. And you've you've owned that. I mean, it was mismanaged. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. Not only the cross facility, but but Santee Cooper in general, it was terribly mismanaged. We believe it's on a better path forward. But can it be an asset? That, that allows us to differentiate ourselves in economic development if we have a power provider that we have some autonomy over. Oh, I think absolutely. That goes back. I think now that it's it's ours, you know, moving forward, and there's no question about that, we have to sort of lean into that and get the maximum amount of good out of that very scenario. Did we learn anything specifically about Santee's failure? I mean, you don't know how to run a power plant. I don't know how to run a power plant. You're a member of the General Assembly. I'm a podcast and radio show host. We're both in business to some degree. Um, but, I mean, it takes a high degree of expertise. It's hard for me to believe that members of the General Assembly understand technically and 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 kind of as a you know a board member and I mean they're telling you about this and they're telling you about that how comfortable are you now with the oversight that the general assembly has and the board at Santee Cooper have over themselves I, I would say that's the one thing we'd have to continue to look at Santee and the people of South Carolina and say we're still learning we're still hopefully moving forward. And so what it looks like today, it probably won't look like when I talk about the PSC and Santee Cooper and the, the governance of those and the oversight of those, it probably won't look like it does today, five, 10 years from now, because we made a lot of changes based on those catastrophe, the catastrophe. And we're still trying to figure out if those changes, you know, were successful. It's hard to, you know, there, there was obvious failure. Um, but the reality was, if you step back and look at it, the state and its entities and Santee Cooper really were taken advantage of by Westinghouse and some other bigger corporate players. And that's you're seeing that continue to play out with indictments that are still being sorted through even today in federal court in Columbia. But I, I think you say, what did we learn? I think we learned an age old lesson of, you know, check and double check behind and um, 
you know, continue to monitor how we do things. And again, that's why I go back to it. May not the governance may not look the same today. It doesn't look today as it looked ten years ago, and it probably won't look ten years from now as it looks today. Is energy the most important issue facing our state and its future prosperity and growth? I think you, you'll it will be a mis- it would be a mistake to not to ever lose sight of sort of those core functions. Um, And so we could say energy is the most important priority, and it probably is right this minute. Um, Infrastructure, which is which is in that energy. Are you comfortable with the way we fund infrastructure at the state level? No, I think the way we fund infrastructure is going to be one of those things that we we addressed it, you know, five or six years ago, and and we just don't you don't know what the future holds uh, with a lot of different changes in technology. Um, But the reality is. You know, we're going to have to focus on education. We're going to have to focus on um, infrastructure. We're going to have to focus on economic development. We can't lose sight of those things really all connect to each other. And the moment we say we're all in for one and ignore the other, we're going to make a mistake. We are a Republican-dominated state. You guys can pretty much set an agenda. And whether the Democrats go along along or not, I mean, you can get your way. You guys go to session in about a month from now, somewhere thereabout. What what does Jay Jordan look at as the state's priorities when you get back to Columbia for the next session? Well, it's a little bit of a different year. This is the second year of a session. So, you know, typically what we do is the a lot House, of leftover. Exactly. The House runs out in year one and passes a bunch of stuff, and we did. And the Senate runs out and passes a few things, which they did. And so now we've got all these I've got a lot of Senate bills in my committee to deal with, and I'm sure there's senators. I think I know Senator Rickenbach. He's got some bills. He's got a. He probably has some House bills. He's going to deal with. So we're going to be. It, there's going to be more negotiating and and back and forth between the House and Senate in a year two versus a year one, re- resolving those issues. The the big issue is going to be in my mind how we how it plays out. You know, we are a Republican dominated legislature. There's no doubt about it. But as Republicans, we continue to be at sort of a war within ourselves. Um, you know, who's too conservative, who's too liberal, who's a rhino, who's, who's, who's a nut, you know, and and we've got to find a more effective, better way to work together because in reality, we agree on more, more than we disagree on. I'm talking about the Republican party. Now, as I look at my friends on the Democrat side in South Carolina, there are absolutely some things we can agree on, uh, at a national level. There's not much we agree on as a, as a South Carolina house Republican, I don't agree with hardly anything that comes out of the Democrat machine in Washington. But we have to re- remember there's a reality of if we fight amongst ourselves, as Ronald Reagan cautioned us not to do, we're going to only provide energy for our enemies to beat us. Last question. You are uh, an attorney. You are very influential in the process of judiciary in South Carolina. Are you comfortable that we are – there's a lot of criticism by Republicans in South Carolina that the South Carolina Supreme Court has not been reflective of the conservative nature of its state. That's changing. Are you comfortable that you can look South Carolina Republican conservative voters in the eye and say this, the, the Supreme Court will more reflect the, the biases of the, of the general public in our state? I feel very comfortable looking my voters in the eye and say we have perhaps the most conservative court maybe ever in South Was it Carolina. fair criticism a year or so ago that the court, the Supreme Court, and I'm not talking about somebody, the Supreme Court was not as conservative as the conservative voters of South Carolina deserve? That, that's probably a fair 
um, reflection on the nothing the, personal, the, uh, nothing personal, and nothing says nothing as to the character of the individual sure. serving in the, those roles. But there's a reality there that that the philosophy on the court or underlying the court probably didn't reflect the majority of South Carolina. Does that make it more advantageous for conservative policies to advance in our state? Well, it certainly makes it something that, you know, so in South Carolina, the judges are are elected through the General Assembly. And so that issue falls on our plate. It falls in our hands. And so we had to look at look at that issue. Well, and I mean, abortion is a recent example, right? We passed an we passed an abortion, uh, uh, the original heartbeat bill, and the Supreme Court rejected it, and that gave questions twofold. Number one, all right, what did we what do we need to address within the legislation to to lock it down? But two, why do we have a, a South Carolina court that's re- re- rejecting a pro life piece of legislation? That was. You, you might have expected that. In fact, you would have expected that historically at times from the national, from the U.S. Supreme Court, but not from the state Supreme Court. And I think that's just an example of your point, which is we probably had a court that didn't quite reflect the the, the philosophy of the of the overall res, of the overall citizens of South Carolina. What do you look for in a judge when given the opportunity to approve or not someone to administer law? I mean, when you think about it, it's the most important thing government does. I mean, I got, we're talking about energy and infrastructure and growth and slow growth, and we're talking about taxes and debt. But at the end of the day, applying justice equally and fairly under the charge of government is the most important thing government does. What do you look for in someone, man or woman, when they're up to be nominated for a judgeship? Well, uh, number one, I agree with you. It is the most important thing government does. The bad news is it's probably the hardest thing government does. Um, it's hard to get justice right. Um, it, it Perhaps it shouldn't be. Um, and, and we have a system, you know, people ask me all the time as a lawyer, it, do we, ha- in our system, it, does it let a guilty go free or an innocent, which, which does it default to? And I'd say that's easy. It defaults toward letting the guilty go free 12, 12 to 1, basically, over putting the innocent man in prison. Um, so, but as to me specifically, I look for competence. I look for someone who has um, been successful in, in their field, in the law, who I can look to and say, yes, that person has excelled in the law. They're competent. They're capable. They, I can see that through how they've practiced law. Um, I look for character. I look for someone who, you know, most people would tell you, um, you can trust that individual. If they tell you something, you can take it to the bank. And then lastly, I think the one that gets sort of undersold a little bit because I, I do believe in law and order, um, but I look for compassion. You know, all among us make mistakes. All among us slip and fall. Um, I've practiced law for 17 years now or so, and um, I've dealt with some truly uh, a handful of people I would consider evil people. They, they are truly um, terrible people. But more often than not, I see a scenario where people make mistakes, people get themselves in bad situations by making bad choices, which are usually their own fault, more often than not, 99% of the time. Um, but we shouldn't throw them away. We should offer them a hope and a path forward to come back and participate in society. Um, so, you know, there is no perfect judge because there is no perfect administration of justice, but those are just a few of the ingredients I look at. You've led me to believe, I'll divulge a private conversation or two that you and I have had, got about a few minutes here. You've led me to believe that at times you really like politics, at times you really don't like politics. Explain that. Oh, I, I like the things about politics. Uh, politics has put in my life a lot of relationships, present company. 
Um, and you get to know people and you get close to people. You get to work shoulder to shoulder. As we get older in life, you know, you're a sports guy. I love sports. I love team, you know, and we really don't have a whole lot of that in life, especially in the modern. We spend all our times on email and phones and things like that. Politics is a mechanism for me to grab hold of what I think is a good cause, doing something good for the for the people of Florence and the people of South Carolina, and, in, and especially in the House, because you can't do it by yourself in, in, in a body of 124, but rallying around an idea with a group of people that you'd say, these are my teammates, and, and making it better, moving the ball forward. What about the mornings you wake up and say, what the hell am I doing in this mess? <laughs> you know, um, my wife and I, we, we go back and forth a lot, and she, she, she will not want me saying this, but she was joking one night when I was texting, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be home late tonight. And she said, I hope it was worth missing your, your upbringing of your children for this. And she was not being serious. I hope not. Um, and I do try and get back home and come back home a lot, but you miss the time at home. You spend a lot of time riding up down the road. There's a lot of times I remember, uh, walking in the door with a phone on my ear at, you know, coming in, uh, and family sitting around, we ready to eat supper and they're looking at you like, can you at least put it down? Can you put it down, please? So, that, you know, it's, it's a give and take. There's been a lot of things that I can point to and say, I'm proud that I got to be a part of and was, and, and I will look back on that. But you, you miss some things too along the way that you, you would have gotten to do probably had you not been in Columbia. Well said, well explained. Appreciate your time. Always. Thank you. Thank you.